Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Matt. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Todorovic. And I'm Matt. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host and uh, colleague. Um, and cool dude. Well, <laughs> he's okay. He's, um, I'm reluctant to say a friend. A friend, colleague. I'm more inclined to confident. say. Um, confident. <laughs> no. All right. Uh Ooh, good start. Today we're talking about vaccines. We're going to focus on immunity, vaccines, and we're going to finish today's episode by talking about all of the current COVID vaccines that are being produced and people are getting and all the evidence that we have at the moment. But the front end of this podcast will be immunity and vaccines generally. Um, I think to begin with, we need to say that I am being Dr. Mike Todorovic, I'm a senior lecturer at Griffith University. I teach anatomy and physiology. I already know this. I already know this. You don't know Sorry, not me. talking to you, oh. talking to everybody else here. Um, I am, I'd probably called an anatomy and physiology generalist, right? I thought you were going to say genius and then I would have great. <laughs> Jack of all <laughs> trades, master of none. Is that what you say? Yep. And I'd say Matt is similar. We've, uh, ja- or oh, jackass. Yeah, I would say that's probably more accurate. Let's... <laughs> Let's begin at, at the, the beginning. beginning. Good start. What a wonderful place to start. I think we should talk about <laughs> immunity. We'll just jump into it. No jokes here. No. That's, no. Th- that's the main concept that underpins vaccines, I think. Immu- okay. Should we define immunity? Yeah, immunity? You, you go for it. All right. Because you are the um, immunology expert. Really? Okay. Wait. 
considering from the last podcast where you said you've done 15 courses and I've done one, <laughs> you made me feel terrible. Look, I don't want to make you feel terrible. I just want to make you feel inadequate. <laughs> so I- immunity. Immunity, I want you to think about if you are getting invaded by some sort of foreign agent. Now, this is sounding like a Bond film, but there are multiple pathogens that can infect your body. So a pathogen is a disease-causing organism. Yes, it can be a virus. It could be a bacteria. It could be a fungi. It could be a a parasite, helminth. A prion? Could be a prion. Well... That's a difficult one because infectious the protein. It is an infectious protein, so it's pathogenic, I suppose. Mm. So it's a pathogen. Yeah, is it a microorganism? Probably no. not. It's not alive. No, but nor are viruses technically, right? Good point. We're gonna. <laughs> We're not doing well. No, <laughs> but if you get infected by one of these <laughs> microorganisms, uh, they on their surface have particular proteins or little flags that we call antigens that the body recognizes as being non-self. So basically belonging to something else and certain cells of the body will target these pathogens for destruction and will present these flags on their surfaces and the immune system will recognize it and you can have innate immune responses, which we spoke about in the last episode and adaptive immune responses, which we're going to talk in the next episode. And what you can get is an immunity. This is a memory of what has happened. And that means that if you get infected by this again, you don't have this long prodromal phase, this long period in which you get sick and you can pass the disease on. You can hit it, knock it on the head, yeah, meet it at the front door. Right. So, so I think an important point just to add, we spoke about the innate immune system last time. And that's always going to react the same way, regardless, right? And what are the come? What are some of the things that you'll ex- expect to see with the immune system in an innate response? I mean, you've got the physical barriers that needs to get through, but once it does get through those physical barriers, then you're going to have inflammation. Yep. You're going to have uh, cytokine release, a whole bunch of chemicals, pro-inflammatory like chemicals. Fever, fever. Yes. You're going to feel kind of rubbish, aches and pains, no energy. So this is kind of getting the immune system ready but um the part that's going to come in and be specific let's just call this this pathogens a virus can we just call it a virus just for sure to make things easier um for the specialized immune cells to come in to target that particular virus you need to bring the adaptive immune system in right and that's t cells b cells mostly right that's going to take days if not weeks yeah to really generate and get it rolling right so um, this is part of the reason why it takes so long to maybe fight off an infection a serious infection like a, in this case a virus being influenza okay so and if your body takes too long you can sometimes get too sick yeah right so yeah. this is the whole idea of what we're going to be talking about in a sec with vaccinations is you're trying to bypass this big long phase of having to wait and get your body ramped up to fight it off because if you get too sick in that time period, it may not be to your benefit. Yeah. So you spoke about earlier that the virus in this case has an antigen like a, uh, a protein or a polysaccharide yeah. that's got a f- it's its flag. Yeah. It says, I don't belong to Michael, I belong to me. So does that mean in your body somewhere there's a specific antibody that locks on to that flag. Correct. So you, part of the reason why it takes so long, you have to locate that special antibody B cell. 
and force it to pro- proliferate. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So somehow you've got to find it somewhere in your body specific to that antigen of that virus. And it's just because of, and it, it's it's a whole episode in itself, yeah. but it has the capacity to, I always think of it like a Rubik's Cube, right? Where it can sort of just change, change, change colors, change positions, yep. and it's got that capacity to, but it's in a way infinite in the amount of, uh, combinations. combinations that it can produce yeah. in order to match an antigen. Yeah. And that's why we can create, depending on the exposure, we can create certain so types. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So at this point in time, we've found the right cell that has the right antibodies now selective to that particular antigen of the virus. So then it just has to ramp up the amount to eventually kill off that virus. But what you're saying is not only have you got the tools now to kill the virus and now you're disease-free, but you now have a degree of memory yeah. against it. So yeah. if you get infected again by that uh, virus, your immune system's already primed. Yeah, practice makes perfect, right? And so now you're immune to that particular virus. And in this case of take, in, instead of the first case, it took, let's say, two weeks to kill it off. It might only take a few days now and you won't get sick. Yep. So that is now immunity. That is the premise of immunity. But okay. there's not only let's like you've described immunity uh, in a very broad sense, okay. and we can develop immunity in a multitude of ways. Yep. So there's four different ways we can get immunity, four types of immunity. Uh, it's a concept. So is that a type? Is that an example of a type? What we just yeah. spoke about? Yes, it is. Um, I won't define it yet, but when we get to it, we'll be able to say that's this type of immunity. Okay. But there's four types. And I think to first classify it into two categories first and then two subcategories from there. Okay. It is a little bit to wrap your head around, but I think if we describe it well enough, you'll be fine. And every health professional needs to know this, that you can have active immunity and passive immunity. Now, if somebody's being passive, if Matt's being passive, he's just sitting there, he's not doing much, he's not using much energy, right? Me, being the active one, I'm using a whole bunch of energy. I'm doing all the work. I'm doing the stuff. Now, that's the same with immunity. Active immunity is your body is developing the immunity itself. It's responding to some sort of challenge and creates the immunity. Passive immunity is someone's just giving the immunity to you. Here's your immunity for you, sir. How nice. I know. So that's the two types of categories, but there's two subcategories. So how do I get that... Oh, you're going to explain. Well, which one would you, well, what type of immunity would you like from me? Uh, well, I don't want to do much work, so <laughs> passive, fine. Okay, passive immunity. Now, there's two subcategories of passive immunity. There is natural and okay. artificial. Now, we need to define that natural here doesn't mean best or better. Okay. Right? That's the natural fallacy. Don't fall into that rabbit hole. Just because it says natural doesn't mean better. Rabbit holes are natural, though. They are. That's <laughs> It's true. Uh, yes, true. But you may break your ankle, so it's not always good for you. So natural here doesn't mean better. What it's simply referring to is it's coming from a natural source. You know, non-synthetic. Oh, not, not, not artificial. Not artificial, <laughs> not man-made, right? All right. All right so the well, it kind n- of is man-made. but yeah, Okay. <laughs> Mainly woman-made in this case, right? Okay. Because okay. natural passive immunity is where a baby, for example, will receive antibodies mm-hmm. from the mother. Okay, and antibodies are those proteins, those Y-shaped proteins that lock onto the antigen, which is the flag of the pathogen. Yeah, fights the infection, has yep. the memory. That's the immu- that's part of the immunity right so wh- there. So where did you say that comes from? 
So uh, maternal antibodies, so from breast milk, for example. Okay, and take a, a few uh, months earlier Yeah. before the breastfeeding. Uh, through the umbilical cord? Placental, yeah. Placental. So you can and also get it that way. So, so think about it. So it's, it's passive yeah. because you... The baby does bugger all. That's right. And it's natural because... From the mother. That's right. So in this case, the mother might be exposed to, let's say, the virus that we spoke about earlier. Her immune system reacts to it. She's producing all these antibodies like we spoke about. But not only is it staying in her body, but it's going into the placenta and into the baby. So now the baby has the antibodies against that virus. I've got an eight-week-old bub, Cordelia, and he is receiving my wife's maternal antibodies. So that's through breast milk because he's born. So I assume they haven't got an umbilical cord still going. Well, we decided to keep (laughs) it. um, Bury it. uh, But he uses it like a tail now. Like a tummy tail. All right. So in, in this case, the natural passive immunity is through the breast milk. Yeah. So if if Kel, your wife, That's right. was to get sick, um, her immune system will react to it and pass it on through breast milk. Pass the antibodies on. Yep. Yes, not the disease. Not yes. the disease. All right. So... Now that's that, one tick. That's, artif- that's natural. Natural, passive. Natural, passive. Now we need to talk about artificial. So artificial is synthetic, is man-made. So this is a tricky one. People think, what is an artificial way of getting passive immunity? So I got it. You got it. I've got it once. So that means somebody needs to give you antibodies that they've made in a lab basically, right? Yep. Okay. So what, what is this? So I was in America working in the, in the States. and at the What were you doing? Uh, I was a ski instructor. <laughs> <laughs> and did, you have, did you do uh, a pizza french fry? Oh, yeah, very good. So that's, um, yeah. You got that from that, South Park. That's performing the wedge. I think we called it the Wedge Christie, which is kind of the starting what? point Ooh. of... What's Christie? I have no idea. Okay. Um, it's basically the first start stage of being able to turn on skis and yeah. then got to slow down and then you can get better in parallel. But, yeah, well done. Uh, end, of this, end of this season, I decided I didn't want to go back to university and I wanted to have a, like a year off travelling, which ended up to... Turn into like three, <laughs> but anyway, um, I thought, oh, you know, I might go down to South America. Okay, this is at the end of the ski season. Um, it was a very last-minute decision, so I looked at maybe some requirements of going to South America, and one of them was yellow fever. You needed to get yellow fever. Yeah. That was a requirement. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> vaccination. Uh huh. But that would take a while for you to develop the immunity. Yeah. So. The other recommendation was you could get, get immunoglobulins, which is antibodies, yeah. against the yellow fever. So I guess what they would do is somehow find a person who may have produced antibodies or yep. maybe an animal, that probably a human, that had produced antibodies against the yellow fever virus and extracted it from their plasma. And then I got it as an injection. So similar to the mother... Through the placenta or the through the breast milk, I got it through an injection, and then for you, for the months that I was down there, technically I was immune to yellow fever. But it doesn't last long, right? Because you didn't produce it yourself. Yeah. So my assumption is the body at some point would go, "These aren't my antibodies. I'm gonna sort of just." Uh, and you don't have that B cell. It's not a strong. It's all humoral. Yes. So it, the strongest immunity that you get is both humoral and cell mediated. Yeah. So T and B. TMB, and this one's purely just antibodies. Yes. So it would just drop off in time. You don't, because your B cells didn't turn into plasma cells. Yeah. And even my, T, even my T antibodies. cells, even my T cells don't have memory either. I know. 
poor things. All right, we've done passive immunity. So that was my story. I think also it's there a good story. I think there was also stories of using this approach in COVID. This like yes, plasma. Well, I don't know if they ever did it. I don't. I didn't read didn't any he, studies. Didn't Trump use it. Trump spoke about it. I don't I, know I if he, that was one of his treatment plans. Really, he he got serum. Serum. Okay, I could be wrong. I'm gonna have a I'm, look into it. Wouldn't put it past. I him. think it was a long list of things. Oh, he got a bunch of stuff. He got a, a cocktail, I think. I think it was actually called a cocktail. Um, that's passive immunity, but active immunity, right? So let's use me as the example. You're I'm the active one. You're right? producing the, uh, the response and using your energy. Yes, yeah, so I produce the antibodies. I don't receive them like in passive. I produce them. So that means I need to get exposed in some way or another to an antigen, something that's the body recognizes as foreign to produce antibodies. So you can do this in the natural sense, which means you just get exposed to the virus or bacteria, which is the example that Matt used at the start, at the beginning. So I get a virus. It might be SARS-CoV-2. They used to do this um, called chicken pox parties. Yeah, don't do it. It's ridiculous. It's a stupid thing. <laughs> stupid. But you had heard of it, right? Yes. When, where parents would take their children who had not been exposed to chicken pox, they would send them to a kid's house who does have chicken pox so they get it young and early. Yeah. But don't because... Some well, die. One, we've got a vaccine get, for it. And some get serious infections. Yeah. Correct. Or and illnesses, yeah. Long-lasting illness from, from getting the disease. So, But, so that's but theor- natural theoretically, that would be a, an active natural form. Natural uh, active. Yes. And artificial, well, that's going to be a vaccine, yeah. which is going to be the focus of the rest of this podcast is where you get injected with an antigen or a virus or a bacteria in one way that's either killed off or attenuated, meaning weakened, or you get a part of it, and the body recognises it as non-self. All the new ones, which you'll talk about because you're now an expert on. Yep, thank you. All right, types of immunity done. That's the COVID ones. Thank you. Okay, well done. All right. That's immunity ticked. Yeah, so we should talk about uh, vaccines and the history of vaccines. What, What do you know about it, Matt? The beginning. Take me back to the beginning. Well, I did some very brief brief research, and I'll tell you, there's a lot of detail out there. So, and Matt skimmed over all of it. <laughs> uh, well, I would probably say from the BCs through to the 19th century, a lot of it's all around the small, 2000 years smallpox. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I read the same. So the earliest that I found, which we don't have anymore. Yes, that's been eradicated. I did write it down. I think 1977. There you go. Um, completely eradicated. Um, part of the reason 2, why it's... 2,000 years. Part of the reason why it's eradicated or why it was so successful to be eradicated is it doesn't have any uh, hosts or vectors. Um, maybe hosts is the correct term. Outside of us? Outside of us. Yeah. So and going back to yellow fever, it can kind of hide in primates and then come back. I mean, obviously, mosquitoes spread it, but it can kind of go off into primates for a period and then the primates can bring it back through mosquitoes much like the SARS viruses whereas um, smallpox doesn't so it doesn't really have a place to hide alright so what's the the earliest that I found was 200 BC alright BCE yeah and that was in China and what they would do would they would find the scabs of the smallpox (laughs) like the pustules and the scabs yeah yeah yeah. grind them up oh and then blow them into people's noses. Great. That's so that's the earliest. Horrid. Then a, a more detailed. So wait, here they're they're actually just getting the disease, 
but I assume that they're getting it in a in a form that it's very mild, maybe or dilute. Maybe yeah. there's not a huge um, viral Lower, load. Viral load, maybe yeah. Because we know for with COVID, for example, if you get a reduced viral load, you will yeah. likely get a less severe case of it. Yeah. So maybe that's the case. Yep. Or because it's an old scab, maybe the virus has been attenuated or weakened in a sense. That's a good point. All right. That's maybe point. maybe you've got just just fragments of it that's been. I, I don't know because we don't yeah. have smallpox anymore. But anyway, please proceed. Uh, and then the next bit of evidence I found was around 1661 where the emperor of China, Fu Lin, actually died from smallpox and Ooh. his son who survived being Kayang, he um, then supported the notion of inoculation. So when was this? Uh, 1661. Okay. And I think at that point they did varilation. Varilation? Is that uh, the correct term? Varilation. Which I believe is more producing a wound and then kind of squashing it in, well, the, again, the crusty parts of the scabs. Yeah, variolation, uh, uh, I think varus means uh, mark on the skin. Okay. Yeah. And inoculation, which w- which is a term pretty much used inter- interchangeably, right? Yeah. Variolation, inoculation um, means to graft. Oh. So basically what's happening here is inoculation in a sense, but okay. variolation happening... At, at the skin. And you said that was what, early 1700s? That's no, 1661. Six, okay. And then going to 1718. Well, let me just stop there. Okay. From 1661, only a decade later, it was starting to become more and more popular and it even moved over to Turkey. You mean smallpox, smallpox or? No, the variolation, <laughs> okay. the process of inoculation, okay. of, of taking you. wounds of the skin and then. So that we didn't have smallpox parties. <laughs> they, uh, they may have, but I think they would have died because I think uh, 30% of people uh, would die of smallpox. Okay. So that's pretty high. Yeah. Right? That's in those days, one every, in three. everything killed you, right? I know. If it wasn't smallpox, you'd be kicked in the head by a donkey or something. Okay. Let's go on. All right. So Turkey. Yep. That okay. was 1672. So I'm just saying that by the 1600s or the 17th century uh, – inoculations or variolation, like you said, is starting to move through the globe. By the, seven, by the early 1700s, it's in Great yeah. Britain, right? Yeah, that's, that was the point I was going to make. 1718, there was a lady, lady Montagu who her husband was the ambassador for Britain in Turkey or I guess that was Istanbul or Constantinople and she actually uh, inoculated her son or she got um, the, the women who would do the that process they they said they actually brought in nut nut shells full of um skin pustules great and they would do the process for it and she actually documented it and then set, sent it to Brisbane uh, to britain not brisbane <laughs> to britain and i guess that's where it was did you say it was documented in britain yes mm. 1721 and interestingly if you look at the stats so one to two percent of people who got inoculated via this process, would die, right? So really? That, yes. So, you know, one, to two, one, one in every 100, two to every, in every 100 would die from this. But 30% of people would die yeah. of smallpox if exposed. So you would probably think it's a one in 100 chance of dying and you go, that's, a, that's high. But if you got smallpox and you don't know where it is and you don't understand germ theory, that is... Prob- be- better odds. I think so. Yeah. So you probably go with the uh, inoculation. So before we get into the big milestone... Well, did you know in the 1700s, 1730, 1736, 
Benjamin Franklin, he lost his son to smallpox. Yeah. And so he wrote... It's really bad in um, America as well. Yes. And well, he and, and they knew that inoculation was something that they could do. He even wrote, I regret, this is actually verbatim, I regret that I had not given it to him by inoculation. Yeah, I think George Washington actually mandated in his army. I think he may have survived from smallpox and then from then on he ensured that every member of his army was... Inoculated. Wow. Um, So 1770, this is when Jenner, Edward Jenner, uh, actually started to see the link between cowpox, milkmaids, and then not getting the smallpox. Now, before, before this, like leading up to this point... Everyone knew that that 1% to 2% dying from inoculation is still a high stat. A lot of people die. Because you're inoculating hundreds of thousands of people, you're going to have tens of thousands of deaths, right? <clears throat> so they needed to find another way. And Jenner, like you said, is one of these people trying to figure out another mm. way of doing it. And he's the father of vaccines. Because yeah. none of you're probably thinking, how come we haven't called any of this vaccines yet? Because none of this is a vaccine because of the definition of a vaccine. But I'll let you go with Jenna and then we can define vaccine. So Jenna, yes, started to see there was a relationship between milkmaids who were presumably are milking cows with cowpox. Also, there's horsepox. So I guess they were kind of transmitted between these two animals and they would see that these women would have pustules on their hands but they were more to do with i guess the cowpox but so they would get a version of the pox yeah but it's not smallpox it's cowpox they still get similar pustules but they don't die yeah all right but they found that it seemed that these women were protective against the smallpox, so they weren't dying from the smallpox. So ah. that's the relationship he found. Like a cross-reactivity there. So the immune system recognises cowpox, and the immune response that it developed was sufficient to fight off smallpox. Yep. And so then we moved to 1796, which was the first experiment that he did, and he inoculated his gardener's son, who was 13 years old, with the cowpox, so I guess injected in this case. And then, this is the big thing, he re-challenged the baby, not the baby, the child, not the adolescent, yep. with smallpox. Wow. That's so, scary. Yeah. That would be hard to get past the uh, ethics, ethics committee. Today. Yeah. 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 So give him Twice. Twice. So yeah. it <laughs> wasn't satisfied the first so time. So the first time when he gave him the actual smallpox, um, there was a small degree of reaction. This would be the typical innate immune system response. So Fever, the, malaise, joint pain. Yeah, a bit of um, yeah, just generally feeling unwell for a couple of days after. Yep. But then bounced back and then did the challenge tests. So I think in this case, got the pustules of smallpox um, victims and that was the challenge twice. And survived. The child survived with no issues. Wow. Now, this is where vaccination began. And vacca is Italian for cow because of its origin of cowpox. So vaccination is referring to taking something from a cow and putting it into somebody else. And I think in in the early stages, they actually brought cows into the the location where they did the vaccination and they just pulled out plasma or lymph fluid from the cow or the calf and then just would inject in people. Gross. So they were (laughs) like a vaccine factory, which was a cow. There you go. So, this that, is so, the beginning so the of vaccination. First, the first use 
technically was 1798. Okay. And then from there, vaccines just exploded. Yeah, 1805 was the first compulsory use of vaccine that was in France. And what were they vaccinating against? Smallpox. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was mandated. And then a bit later uh, in the UK, 1853, the UK passed the Vaccine Act, yep. which, which enforced parents to ensure that your child under three months had to be vaccinated. And if you didn't, you would be fined or put into jail. Wow. And then, are you done with the 1800s? Yeah, the only thing I'd add is, because one of the methods, I'm not actually sure, you might be able to correct me here, I'm not sure exactly how they did the vaccination, if it was injection or still at this point a scratch and an in kind of a... Um, For smallpox? Yeah. Yeah, don't know. Do you know? Nope, don't know. But my, my understanding is um, it was still introduced through creating a wound and putting the material into the wound and then kind of wrapping the arm up. And because, yeah, the upper arm. Yeah. You're just pointing to... Sorry. Yeah. Sure what you mean. But as you would expect, um, there were some children who would get an infection from it, not necessarily from the, the smallpox, but just opening a wound and shoving dirty stuff into it. Yeah. And children were getting gangrenous arms and, do- and dying. Oh. And so there was opposition almost straight away, particularly when it became mandated yeah um to vaccines and so we had an anti-vaxxment movement almost at the same time as the vaccines and there was in 1882 always existed huh yeah always there was actually a anti-vax league in america in 1882 which had its first meeting in new york city and it proposed that smallpox was not through a contagious well they wouldn't have had germ theory yet so they, uh, they, so they, they said, said 5g was, they said <laughs> 1g <laughs> uh, was by filth not by anything infectious but but saying that there was, there, right. was, there was no concept of germ theory at this point yeah until not louis defending pasteur. them but that's just an so when did louis pasteur come in yeah he kind of came in i think well, i don't know when he was born but i think he did a lot of the breakthroughs in the late 18th century, so yeah. like 1890s into the ni- 1900s. Because he came up with germ theory and produced a number of vaccines, yeah. right? So he was a big with the microscopes, right? He didn't invent microscopes. No, definitely not. That happened a couple of hundred years prior. Who was that? Uh, that was uh, the Dutch... Leidenhoek or something? Yeah, that's it. Anyway, so he... Some of uh, Pasteur's big breakthroughs was rabies, uh, cholera, I think, and anthrax. Uh, producing the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, not producing yeah. those diseases. I think with the interesting one with um, rabies, he did note the link between these crazy dogs, then people getting bitten, <laughs> bitten by these crazy dogs and then people dying shortly after. It's a strange disease, that one. We don't have it in Australia, but it's very strange the way it manifests. So I think what he proposed, not proposed, but actually invented was the live attenuated form of the a vaccine. So what he would do is he would, because rabies, correct me if I'm wrong, it spreads or it is housed in neural tissue, specifically spinal cord. Is that right? Yep. He would pull out rabbit spinal cords um, that were infected, infected by rabies, yeah. kind of suspend it, and then dry out one end. Yeah. And he noted that the end that was drying out, so exposed to kind of the outside world and heat and light and so forth, it would become weakened 
Ah. And then he would get that form of it and it was so kind of attenuated that when he put it back into people, um, even after they had been bitten by a, a dog that was, what's the correct term? Rabid. Rabid, there we go. Yep. Um, would be enough to kind of cure them. And so, again, wow. similar, to, similar to the way Jenna did it, but he would be given it to people who had just been bitten by dogs and then quickly given this um, weakened form. Even like people were sending over from America to France people who had just been bitten by dogs. Really? And they would arrive in time for him to be able to give the inoculation. Because you don't have very long after yeah. you get rabies. Yeah. Uh, and I think after this time period, and we start hitting the ni- early 1900s, we really start pumping out vaccines. Vaccines for diphtheria, tuberculosis, yellow fever, influenza, po- polio, poliomyelitis, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, hepatitis. We start really pumping these viruses out. Uh, uh, vaccines, I should say. Pumping the vaccines mm-hmm. out. Now, I think we should talk about the types of vaccines that are now available. Yeah. What do you think? Well, the only thing I will, will add, um, polio was a so in, in the 1950s. Oh, po- yeah. I've polio, got something to add there too. Polio was a real significant breakthrough. So, like we said, there were anti-vax movements going into this point that kind of followed each you know breakthrough. And in certain countries, I guess, mandated certain vaccine laws. Um, so, there was those kind of... Um, human, not human rights, but liberty arguments that, you know, it's my body, my right kind of thing, um, which still follows today. Um, but when we kind of hit polio, which was a difficult um, infection to get past because uh, it required culturing techniques, which we hadn't kind of um, mastered. surpassed, mastered, yeah. yeah. But when we got to that point... What does that mean, though, culturing techniques? What, do you, what are you referring to here? Well, this polio being a virus, yep. um, you need to be able to put it into... Because it's a uh, intracellular parasite, so yes. it needs a cell it's to... It's intestinal. Able, it needs a cell to survive, right? That's Unlike right. bacteria can survive outside cells, uh, viruses need to infect a cell to not only um, keep reproducing, but I guess somewhat to survive. Yep. Um, so they had to learn techniques to be able to... Um, put cells into petri dish that were still alive to bring the virus and then to study it. Yeah. And so that took some time, but then they mastered it in kind of the 1950s. And that was such a significant breakthrough that really the um, the opposition to vaccines really weaned off and just... Um, however, however, yeah. to that point, so the polio vaccine, we're going to talk about different types in a sec, um, was the one that got pushed through because even then, like we see all these competing... COVID vaccines now, even then in the 50s when polio started to rise, we had competing individuals making vaccines, different types, right, like we have now. And uh, Salk, who was yeah, the... Yeah, he was a, a breakthrough. Yes, yeah, so breakthrough he, man. he inactivated, he killed the virus off, right? He, uh, sorry, he... he, he yeah. So it's an inactivated form, so it's a dead form of the virus. That's right. He killed, killed it off... With formalin or formaldehyde, right? And then gave it through. Now, here's something that happened in 1955... Uh, one of the laboratories who was making it uh, produced over two hundred thousand, um, uh, like live ones. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't kill it off properly. Yeah, um, and people, so people were infected. And two hundred thousand kids got this. Uh, Forty thousand of them got polio. Mm. Uh, two hundred were paralyzed, and ten died. Yeah. And this was called, I think, it was called the cutter. The the the. Uh, I think it's called something like the the, the cutter. Uh, I don't know what they would call it. But it was so important at the time because there were no 
vaccine-based regulations in yeah. the States, that this was the impetus to putting through the current rigorous vaccine regulation and legislation. And it's one of the reasons why, when we talk about COVID, why even though they may have rushed the vaccine or pushed it through quickly, it still had to undergo rigorous tests so that things like this don't happen again. Now, account with the COVID vaccines, we'll tell you why, but this is a fear that people have. Yeah. I don't want to get a virus which you tell me is dead, but it might be alive. Yeah. Now, it's not going to happen nowadays. It did happen then. I get the fear. And I think there was another case at the same time, I think around World War Two, where um, certain Americans, because I think um, the military did a lot of vaccinations and the production of vaccinations in those in those decades. Um, but when they were producing the yellow fever vaccines, uh, presumably for the, uh, the soldiers who were fighting in those parts of the world with yellow fever, they also contaminated it with hepatitis B. So oh. a lot of soldiers actually got hepatitis B. Wow. Mm. It's called the Cutter Incident because it, the labs were the Cutter Labs. Okay. There we go. All right. So, so that would bring a lot of distrust into it. It, it would, right? Yeah. So, uh, And I get that. I get that. But now that we have rules and regulations and they're very strict, some of the strictest you're going to have for any particular drug or intervention. Yeah. Right? And we're going to talk about how effective vaccines are shortly. But I think we should talk about the types of vaccines. Can we just finish in the last no. important, important time point, I think? Absolutely. Go on. Which was probably the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Yep. And um, that actually got quite a lot of pushback. Because at this point, at least when was a, this? At least in America, well, I guess probably 60s, 70s. I don't right. have it, the exact date on the top of my head. But um, again, it became a mandated vaccine, and I think a lot of people in America saw it as, well, you know, unlike polio, I had measles. It wasn't a big deal. Why is this another thing I have to get? Yeah, I don't want it. And so there was a degree of pushback, and so it did get opposition. But the big, the big issue with the measles, mumps, rubella, um, was in the 1990s and there was a particular gastroenterologist called Wakefield. Yep, Andrew Wakefield. And he was investigating, I think in the first case, he was investigating uh, celiac disease because obviously being a... GRT. Um, and he was looking at links between, I think, just measles and um, celiac disease. And then... I believe he produced, uh, published some articles on that. And then he found, he moved on and found a possible link, what he thought, between the vaccine and celiac disease. Yeah. And a similar time to that, um, they started to find that people with certain cognitive regress regressive disorders, which now they would say maybe the autistic spectrum, sure. may have had a higher incidence of... Um, GIT complaints. And so then he thought, oh, maybe there's a link between GIT and autism. Yeah. And so then they had the investigation on does MMR cause autism? Yeah. And then the, he did the publication. 1998 published in The Lancet, which is a prestigious Very med, prestigious. Med journal, probably, probably, right? the, probably the, the height of medical publications, right? Yep. Yep. But... What happened? Well, he didn't disclose. So I think there was 12 authors on that paper. He didn't disclose that he did receive £55,000 from lawyers who were supporting p parents who had children 
with autism yep. that thought that there was a potential link with the vaccine. So there's a big conflict of interest with that. Yep. He'd failed as his duties as a responsible consultant, other words that were stated. And I think also he hadn't notified the other people on the paper of that. Um, and then I think even just what was found in the paper was fairly benign, but then the um, what was stated to the media was quite sensational and then it, I guess snowballed. Yeah, and the repercussions were he lost his licence to, to practice as a physician. The all publication the, was fully retracted. Once all the authors were aware that he was he got the £55,000, they took their name off the paper and then finally, yeah, he was deregistered and I believe the paper was retracted. Yep, and if you're thinking, well, regardless of all this, is he right? Is there a link between autism and vaccination or the MMR vaccine? The answer is no. Because remember, this was only the, the paper was only twelve people, twelve children. There you go. Okay, I don't think and, that n number is high enough. And so, what followed were huge epidemiological studies and investigations to see if there were links with the, the vaccine and autism. Huge amounts, thousands upon thousands, no link. I think we've looked at uh, a million children, yeah. and there's no link between vaccines of any kind and autism. So, yeah. there you go. So I think that's um, a crude timeline of some vaccines. Yeah, it's a dodgy history of vaccines, but I think that's fine. It'll it's it, it served our purpose. Now we need to talk about different types of vaccines that you can get. What okay. do you reckon? Okay. Do you want to start or me? Do you want to do herd immunity before the vaccines, or are you? Oh, uh, yeah. Let's do herd immunity. So just just that idea of why we want to give people vaccines to stop a. a uh, an infection within yep. within a population. Yeah, and herd immunity has been spoken about so much at the moment with COVID about people arguing, well, we'll just get the disease. If it's only killing, you know, 0.1% of the population, then let's just let everyone get infected and we'll get herd immunity and we'll be fine in the future. Okay. Um, so the first thing I guess we need to understand is with an infectious, we'll call it a pathogen, uh, a disease-forming, causing uh, microorganism, uh, it needs to have a reproduction number that's above one. Yep. At least one, but above one. It basically means when you get the disease, you need to pass it to at least one, one other, other person. person. Yeah. And that just means for it to survive in a population, it needs to have a number above one yes. to continue. If it's less than one, it will die off and then not exist anymore. Yeah. Okay. So just some numbers. I thought I'd just list a couple just so you know, you know how infectious some things are. So I'll move from kind of low to high. So Ebola is about 1.5 to 2.5. So if you got infected, you'd only infect 1.5 people. To 2.5 people. Okay, yep. so that's what we use. That's, yep. Okay, go on. Um, influenza is about 1.4 to up towards 2. All right. Okay. The common cold, so this is probably also a type of coronavirus, is about 2 to 3. Um, interestingly, the 1980 influenza, which we don't call Spanish flu anymore, we just call it 1980, I think, yep. uh, is 1.4 to 2.8. Now, what about COVID? Currently. Currently? Oh, a bit over two? About 3.28. Okay, yeah. that's higher than I thought. And interestingly, the new strain that they're talking about, the one with the UK, possible South, South Africa, UK, it's thought to be possibly about 0.4 to 0.7 more. More. 
So nearly four. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Which is quite significant. Yeah. Which we can get to. Now, I'm not going to go through many of the others, but some of the, the big ones is measles. Me- measles. Right? measles or pertussis or whooping cough. It's like 12? Between 12 and 18. Yeah. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yep. So what that means, if something is that high... What you need to have, and this is the next term, is a herd immunity threshold, which yeah. means how many people in the society or the population that needs to be immune, okay, to prevent it spreading. So you've just defined herd immunity. Have I? Yeah, <laughs> no, which is good. So measles, what this means, we've got a vaccine for it. Wait, so let's first just quickly define herd immunity because okay. you are talking about the, the, the specifics of it. So herd immunity is when a sufficient number of people within the population yep. become immune to a disease and it can happen through via vaccination. Or natural. Or natural, right? Yep. And because these people are immune, it limits now the spread of the disease throughout the community and it means that certain people who aren't immune don't get the disease. That's herd immunity. And it has to be, it has to be a contagious infection. Yes. It has so to be passed on from so one So for instance, this is a, an example. So tetanus is infectious but it's not contagious yes so yes, herd yes, immunity yes. is irrelevant for tetanus yes because okay. if i get it i'm not passing it to you right. yes so it's for contagious uh infections so yeah. what you were saying is if the r number is higher you got you need to identify what the herd threshold threshold is so for measles it needs to be so this means people in society in, in your population that needs to be immune needs to be at least 83 percent but probably closer to 94%. So if we wanted to eradicate measles, we would need a consistent vaccination of up to 95% of people yeah. in order to eradicate it. Yeah, and and we haven't eradicated it, so people aren't getting their vaccines, right? Well, that's the MMR. Yeah. And that's the one with that quite a lot of people still have, uh, they're sceptical yeah. against it. Yeah. And so there are still people who are adverse to, to get that one. And there are populations that have popped up, particularly in 2019. There was one in New York City amongst, um, I think, some Jewish populations. There was quite a big one in smiling population in Minnesota. Yeah. And then there was quite a big one, I think, in Samoa. Yes. That was, yeah, what, a year and a half ago? Yeah. Yeah. And it just dropped down. So it mean, it could mean that it went from 95 people, children that were vaccinated, down to 70. Out of 100. Out of 100. And all of a sudden, you start to have measles come back. That's right. And then what happens with measles infection is statistically people will die. Kids will die. So what about something that's not as infectious? Like what was the what was the first one you said, like Ebola, for example? Well, I haven't got Ebola, but I got the flu. The flu yep. is suggested about 44%. Okay. Of that. Because it's not that infectious. Yep. So, so from that type of calculation where we know that COVID is below measles but above the flu. So I've got COVID. All right, what is it? The suggestion for COVID is around 60%. But we know that's not necessarily true. But interestingly, this is what I looked at, was within a population, like let's just say a population of 100 people, of that population, if it's homogenised like our our society is, so you've got young people, old people, middle-aged people, um, sick people, yep. healthy people. Um, not all that population behaves the same. Okay, so there, let's just say, for argument's sake, a quarter of that population, which may be older, would be 
um, they wouldn't go out much. They'd stay in their homes more. Yeah, they're like, you. it's 7 p.m., it's too dark, you don't like the look of the kids walking down the street and exactly. you go, I might just stay home tonight. So that means 25% of that population really doesn't interact with many people. So that would in influence herd immunity. Because okay. they're less likely to spread it to the next person. That's right. 25%, another quarter, are highly active. So they're like sprint. This is you. Like me, right? Sprinting around the street, knocking on everyone's door. Kissing hey, how strangers. Are you doing? That's right. Yep. So these guys are two times more likely to spread these kind of things right. than the average. So the average being 50% of the population, just average. So but not all people are weighted same. equally when it comes That's to right. herd immunity calculations. That's right. So right. when you take certain characteristics into account, there's. Yeah. These are just proposed numbers that there's a thought that maybe even it could drop down to 43%. Really? Yeah. So that would even suggest how we may um, implement the vaccine, let's say, for COVID into the population. But can I just add sure. that there are populations on this planet who have basically uh, had greater than 70% of their population. So you said like the city in the Amazon in Brazil. That's right. Manaus. Yep. yep. 76% of the population has had COVID. 76%. Yep. Now that's greater than that number that you yep. stated, right? And so... It's still moving through But it. the mortality rate's still going up, 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 and people aren't getting protected. Yep. So 76%, at least for that population, isn't enough to yep. get herd immunity. So... And people need to realize that there. I can't think of any, you might be able to think of one, I can't think of a disease in history where we have developed herd immunity from actually getting the disease, right? So, so uh, active, what is it? I think the only thing I can... No, natural active, yeah. right? So yeah. there's, there's no disease where people have... Well, a yeah. community has developed herd immunity Completely from getting eradicated. the disease. Yeah. But the we've only, only done it through vaccines. Yeah, the only point I can add to that is... Um, the term herd immunity, which probably comes through animals in terms of from vets. At least the word herd does. Yeah. Um, because they probably, you know, farmers or shepherds probably realise that, you know, if you had a sick couple of sheep, it's better to get them out than keep them with the rest of the flock. Yes. Because otherwise they'd all die off, right? So there was probably a the concept was known. But the first time it was coined that I You're could not find, recommending picking people out. No. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> was in the 1930s and it was with measles but this particular pediatrician found that when there was a huge epidemic that and a lot of kids got it quickly then when there was a, a huge mass then it would slightly die off and disappear for a while but it yeah. wouldn't be eradicated it just would mean that oh there's an effect that maybe people are now immune and then it's harder to, to move through the well population. we know in biology you've got you know, logarithmic growth phases and then you've got plateau phases and then you've got decline phases and then it happens again and again and again over and over. All right, so we've defined herd immunity. Can we now talk about the different types of vaccines, please? Yeah. Okay. All right, how do you want to start? Do you want me to start? Or do you want to start? Uh, you go for it. Okay, so I was just basically going to say when we look at vaccines, you can have different types. Now, you can have a vaccine for a virus, you can have a vaccine for a bacteria. But the whole premise of vaccines, right, is to elicit an immune response by exposing the body to part of a virus or bacteria that the body recognises as being non-self, so as being foreign. Now, often this is a protein on the surface of the virus or bacteria. And so if you work backwards from here, you can say, well, if I know that all these points... I can create a virus by taking an entire 
uh, a vaccine, sorry, by taking an entire virus and putting it into the body. But that might get somebody sick. So I could take an entire virus and weaken it and put it into somebody's body. I could take an entire virus and kill it and put it into somebody's body. I could take part of a virus and put it into somebody's body. Or if we're talking about bacteria, we know that bacteria produce toxins. Yeah. Right? So we could potentially take, and it's the toxins usually that get people sick. So we could take the toxin, like inactivate weak, it, okay. or weaken it, or probably... Modify not, it in a way that it's not going to cause a problem. Correct, and then put it in. And these are the main ways. So the definitions here are basically... <clears throat> Live attenuated. Yep. So attenuated means weakened. Correct. Okay, so this is essentially where you get the whole virus. We'll, we'll, we'll call it or a bacteria. Virus. We'll call it... Can we call it just a virus for so, make it easier? Yeah, but okay. just remember that m- many of these you can do with bacteria as well. Okay, so live attenuated is you get the whole virus, it's a wild type, a wild type virus, you bring it into the lab and you replicate it over and over and over and over and over. And as it has all its children, you know, with they did this with the measles virus and they did it for 10 years before they could use it. But you do it through different cell lines. Yeah. Like you take it out of, so people probably don't realize. So Matt and I, we do research. We go into the lab. We uh, even our on, on even, the street. Even our colleagues don't realize <laughs> that we do research. But we do research. We go into the labs and we culture cell lines. Now I've got very cultured cells. Yeah, well, people would say otherwise. We culture, and you, I think people are surprised to hear this. Scientists aren't. I've cultured monkey cells. I've cultured human cells. I've cult- uh, cultured embryonic fetal cells. Um, I've cultured every animal type of cell, cancer cells, or cells from your skin. Foreskin. Foreskin, yep. Five skin even. I've, con- <laughs> I've cultured all these different types of cells. This is quite common to do. And so if you've got a particular virus that loves living in human cells... Well, you could take the concept of, well, let's put it in another type of cell and then that virus needs to slightly change itself so it survives more in a monkey cell and then put it into a dog's cell and then, oh, it needs to change again. And what you have is over all these successive cultures and times, the virus will change to survive in that culture, which is a non-human, so that then when you expose it or put it into a human being, doesn't cause it doesn't disease. cause disease, but the body still recognizes the proteins on its surface as foreign. I wonder if this was the how the cow, cowpox produced immunity with the smallpox. I uh, wouldn't be. I think that's how most of these viruses work. Mm. So basically, it's still the the virus is still alive, but it's so weak that it's not going to cause the disease. Yeah. Now the advantages with this type, yep, is that you get quite a good immune response to it. It's kind of like the natural form of an immunity. So you're, you're kind of being infected by the actual virus because it's still alive. So you get a full-blown immune response. But the, the downside or the side effect, no, well, not really the side effect, but the limitation is that certain people who might be immune compromised or certain have certain issues with their immune system can't theoretically have this because they could get the actual virus itself. Because there is a possibility that the the virus can shift pathologically in the body and you could technically get it. Yes, unlikely. Some examples of live attenuated include measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, which is chickenpox, and some types of influenza. Okay, so that's live. Is there anything else we should mention there? No, I think the reason why 
most of the live attenuated vaccines are viruses and not bacteria is just because viruses are more likely to change in accordance with the host cell line because its survival depends on the host and also it has fewer genes to play around with. So, so inactivated, I think we should talk about. So this is where you, you still culture the virus or the microorganism, okay, but then you kill it. You kill it either through things like heat, chemical, yep. maybe even radiation. That's right. Formalin is fairly common. And I'm just turning the air conditioning down. Turn it off. Cold. Um, yeah, heat, radiation, chemicals, inactivates it. It's so effective is, for shorter periods. So this is basically like um, you spoke about the, the organism before having an outside coat with flags or like a, like a uh, uniform. This is like you've just got the corpse of the virus and you just thrown it into the body. So your immune system comes across a whole lot of dead bodies. And it's like, well, what am I going to do with this? Dead viruses. Dead <laughs> viruses. Um, so it's obviously going to respond to it. Yeah. But it doesn't, because it's not replicated in the body, it doesn't. Uh, let me give you a better analogy. All right. right. It's like when, if you're, you know, going to go fight um, a battle where. You're a knight, you're dressed up in your armor, you've got another knight who's your enemy dressed up in his armor. You you can tell that he's the enemy by the way that his armor is, the color, the way it is, or whatever, right? So that's what you recognize to fight and attack. And so that's a live virus. But it's almost as though in this case, they've just taken the suit of armor and they've just propped it up. Or just thrown it over the, the wall of the castle. And I see it and I'm like, that's the enemy. And I just start whacking the suit of armor with my sword. Okay. St- it's just the suit of armor I recognize, not what's inside. Now, the problem with that is... Good analogy. It's a great analogy. I'll, I'll, potentially, I'll use it no, one won't. day. Um, but <laughs> the side effect, well, not again, not the side effect, limitation of this form is that it doesn't generate such a strong and immune response. So, therefore, you probably need ongoing boosters. So, some and adjuvants maybe, which, yep. which yep. support it. Yep, that's right. So an adjuvant is basically a chemical that you add into the vaccine, which means you require less antigen but have the same, if not better, immune response to it. So some examples of this one, polio. Yeah, polio, hep A. Rabies. Yeah. Now, one interesting one is pertussis, which is whooping cough. Yeah. Now, there was um, claims that it did cause, uh, I think, encephalitis. Do you call it encephalitis or encephalitis? I say encephalitis. Um some time ago, and so there was um, concerns about it, and they actually weakened it right back. And so the people who were initially um, inoculated with pertussis in its first iteration have lifelong immunity. But, oh. but because, because it's been weakened off so much now, we do need boosters for whooping cough vaccine. Interesting. Mm. Yes, we do. You just got yours recently, so you could meet my son. <laughs> Didn't you? That's right. That's yeah, there right. you go. All right, so that's they're, the, they're actually whole um, cell uh, vaccines, one being live, one being dead. Yeah. Now what we can do is we can move into just parts of the, the virus or the bacteria. Yep. So this is finding the region of the p- pathogen that is likely to s- stimulate the immune system, yep. which would be the antigen, and instead of throwing the whole armour across the cell, sorry, across the castle wall, you're just finding a part the helmet of it. And chucking the helmet over. The helmet over. <laughs> so it's called a subunit vaccine. Yep. So you just take the, the, the portion of it. Um, like you said, that presents as a flag or an antigen. 
Um, and this can include like influenza is one of these, hep B. And again, what, what's the limitation here? That I guess the limitation is that uh, it's not getting a really strong amount of an immune response. Therefore, um, you'd need boosters in this case. And in a way, this is the way these COVID vaccines are working. In a roundabout way, right? Is this the way that the um, the UQ vaccine was working through Not sure. a, a protein? I don't know. They dumped it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I think it was. I think it was. I think they were just taking a portion. I think the problem with the UQ, the UQ the, U, the University, University of Queensland, Queensland yeah. that the limitation, which really wasn't, was that they had a protein that they got from HIV virus That's that right. stabilizes the protein, which they called a clamp. But what happens is that also became an antigen and so the immune system not only responded to like the protein they threw in for the COVID, like presumably that's a spike protein, but it also would respond to the one of the proteins from the HIV virus. Now, you can't get HIV from just a protein. No. You need the genome, right? So you'd never get HIV from just a random protein from the virus. But you were getting the antibodies. Right, and so if you were to ever do a HIV test down the track you'd be shown as positive, even though you never had it? False positive. So it's an issue, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a potential issue, but you're right. They had to scrap it, unfortunately. And it had nothing to do with the potential efficacy of the actual Mm. COVID vaccine. But that's that's a good point. So subunit vaccines. Yep. And then then finally, we have the toxoid. Well, what about conjugate? Vaccines. Did you look into conjugate vaccines? So conjugate vaccines um, are, are similar... Uh, in, in which they take a part of a bacterial coat, so bacterial, and they use this to elicit an immune response, but it's really weak. So they need to get a protein that conjugates to it and it exacerbates the immune response. So pneumococcal is actually a conjugated vaccine where it's a weak portion of the bacterial coat conjugated to a protein and together it elicits a good immune response. Together. Together. Wow. Yep. So, so does that mean, though, that if it, you're re-challenged with that particular bacteria, that its coat is enough to have immunity? You don't need a protein with the... I'd assume so. Okay. I'd assume so. And then your last one, like you said, toxoid. So this would be examples of like diphtheria, which is a bacteria that a toxin would cause. I, was it, is it GIT or is it... I can never remember. Yeah, and tetanus. And then tetanus, which um, goes to your neurons... Clostridium tetani is actually the disease. Which causes bacteria. Tetanae, which is like all your muscles lock up. Like when I contract doing a bicep curl. So um, rather than attack the bacteria, it attacks the toxin. And again... But they usually... So these... These are the toxins that are produced by these bacteria and they inactivate it. Like an exotoxin? Yeah. So they, they, they break it down either... So think about it. It's a protein... So if you expose it to heat or certain chemicals or maybe radiation, it may denature, unfold. So it just slightly changes its shape, but it's still recognised as foreign. Okay. Um, and again, the limitation here is you'll need ongoing boosters. So this is why you keep needing your tetanus, which I think tetanus is with whooping cough. Maybe. I should know. I mean... Uh, DPT, so diphtheria pertussis tetanus. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Uh, so I'm just looking at the national immunisation records for Australia at least, which I assume would be similar to UK and USA, right? Because most of our listeners are USA and UK. Are they? Yeah. Not Australia. You'd think that would have... Anyway, it's a wonder you guys can understand what we're saying. <laughs> um, so we've got Hep B at birth 
At two months, which is where my bub's at, he just had diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis. So that's which the is three. Ho- whooping cough, yeah. Hepatitis B, uh, polio, uh, influenza, rotavirus, pneumococcal. That's a lot. Yeah. Now that leads me on to asking you some questions about myths. Yeah. Can I ask you a question just in that context? Yeah. So Let's do it. So I'm going to be a, a skeptic um, <laughs> parent. Can I say parent? Yeah. And I'm going to ask you all these myths. I'm, I'm just going to. I've had a child okay. that needs all these vaccines. Yeah, but you're scared. And I'm very scared. You're worried. I'm concerned. I've heard Nervous. a lot of things. Yep. And I've got all these questions and concerns about vaccines. Now, the first one, which kind of just goes on what you're saying. Yeah. Look, my ba- I've got a newborn. Look how small they are. Yeah. They've got a very immature immune system. Yeah. They're so weak. So many vaccines so quickly. Yeah. Surely this is not good. Yeah. A lot of people say that. But did you know that a baby in its first year of life will get 160 immunological components from vaccines, right? And that sounds like a lot. It does. But from a single bacteria, you can get over 3,000 immunological components exposed. So just from one... One bacteria. How much? 3,000. So my newborn might just, you know, put something in the mouth. Yep. Introduce bacteria. They're exposed to probably more immunological components than they are in all the vaccines from their first year. So I think part of that is just the thought that, you know, you're getting, the thought is you're getting hepatitis, you're getting tetanus, you're getting all these really crazily bad diseases all in one. Yeah. But really all you're getting is just antigens. That's right. Like just little small flags. Yep. So really it's not you're getting all these illnesses in one shot, you're just getting little... not getting any of the illnesses. You're just getting either fragments of them or inactivated... I think that is the main concern, right? I think that's one of the biggest concerns, but there's there's others. Do you have have any others? No, I mean in terms of why they're reluctant for so many vaccines, the thought that they're actually getting so many of those diseases, it's rather than just getting the antigens of those diseases. Yeah, no, every day your baby's exposed to thousands of immunological components. All right, so you spoke about um, putting other things in the in the vaccine. Yeah. I don't obviously, you know, mercury. We hear about mercury. Mercury causes all sorts of brain development issues. Why why is mercury in Like there? Mad Hatter's disease? Yeah. Did you know the Mad Hatter? And Was this mad is just a bit because of, he used mercury in his hats. That's what the yeah. Exactly right. And interestingly, they used to use mercury as a treatment for smallpox. I think they use mercury in a lot of treatments in Was those it successful days. because everyone died and never got the smallpox? I don't know. All right, so you're worried about mercury in the vaccines? Yeah, because okay. I, I just don't understand why Why the heck would mercury be in there? Okay, first thing, in Australia, we haven't had mercury in our vaccines for 20 years. Is that thimerosal? Correct, okay. thimerosal. Just, it, it's basically there to help uh, keep it you know, stable, stable right? Now, like your aunties... There's two types, methyl and ethyl. Yep. Now, ethyl is the type that is in vaccines and it's actually excreted within seven days. Methyl is the type that we accumulate that you can actually get from fish, for example. Like tuna. Like tuna. So, it's not even the same type of mercury. Mercury isn't mercury isn't mercury. There's different types. Uh, Okay, so... So, one, they're not in any vaccines in Australia for 20 years. So, if you're worried about that, not the case. And secondly, we excrete it. We don't accumulate it. Okay, what about other, you know, metals? What about aluminium? So aluminium doesn't salts... That, doesn't that cause Alzheimer's disease? 
Yeah, people have said that before. I don't think that's the case. But aluminium salts are used as an adjuvant. And like we said, I think a little bit earlier, it enhances the vaccine. So you need less of the vaccine. So that would be the ones that don't elicit a big immune response. So you didn't actually need to put this in with it to cause a, a greater immune reaction. Yeah. And you look, you'd be surprised how much aluminium salts you get just from eating and drinking normal everyday stuff. But if you're worried about your baby, for example, a breastfed baby... Within six months of breastfeeding, we'll get 10 milligrams of aluminium salts. A formula-fed baby will get 120 milligrams. Every vaccine in the first 12 months put together is less than 4.2 milligrams. Wow. So significantly lower. That's right. Um, Formaldehyde, I mean, that's used to preserve things from... Like cadavers. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, why is that in there? yeah, well, I mean, we all have formaldehyde in our bodies. Even a five kilo baby will have a milligram of formaldehyde in its blood. And a vaccine is 10 times less than that, right? And if you like rum, Maddie, that's got 100 times more formaldehyde than that. We make formaldehyde as a byproduct. If you drink alcohol, you love making formaldehyde. So and I think you do just make formaldehyde in your gut, don't you? You do. All right, um, a few more. Yeah, um, sure. I've heard, and this goes to the flu vaccine. Yeah. Um, I've, a, I've heard it's really not effective at all. That's A, but also I've heard people can actually get the flu from it. So why would I want it? If A, it's not really effective and B, I could get it. Uh, one, you're not going to get it because it is inactivated. So dead. It's dead. So you're getting a dead virus. So it's impossible to get the flu from it. But I've heard so many people, they get sick two days later. Yeah, look. I would say it's one of two things, right? One, you probably contracted it a couple of days before you got the vaccine okay. and you ended up getting it because you need a couple of days for the vaccine to kick in up to seven, you know, up to a week or so, two weeks sometimes for it to so kick in. coincidental. Coincidental. Or maybe you're just experiencing fever, malaise, fatigue, muscle soreness from your immune system doing its thing and kicking into play. Okay. Right. Because did we talk about cytokines being released? And the cytokines that are being produced. We spoke about fever and... Yeah. yeah. We'll talk more about it with COVID. Okay. Uh, and then I guess the big... But, it, but, but you, you said it's... Even if you got it, it doesn't work. It's up to 70% effective. Right? And, so and part of the good. reason And part of the reason why it loses its effect or efficacy is because it mutates quite quickly, doesn't it? That's right. So we need a new one every year. Okay. Finally, in the big one, what about vaccines and autism? No. Not at all? Nope. No link. Nope. Okay. What a looked at over a million kids. Nope. Definitively. Yep. Okay. Can I just throw one one more into the mix? Go for it. Now this is probably allows it to to pivot into the last point of this podcast, which is COVID vaccines. Yeah. Now, actually, no, I've got two. Oh, okay. It seems to me I've been told by a lot of people. Uh, Friends, we've, we've really pushed these vaccines super fast through. Like usually, yeah. you, I've heard that you know, like for instance, measles t- t- took over ten years. I mean, just to do the um, pathogen. I mean, yeah. this took ten months. Surely, you know, shortcuts were made. Well, in actual fact, I think it was sixty-eight days from when China first sequenced SARS-CoV-2 to when we had a vaccine. Really, right? I mean, like in terms of the first phase. Yeah. Wow. Now, you may go, that's not good enough. I'm scared. They obviously haven't done their quality control. Mm, yeah. They have. Yeah. Since we spoke about 1955 polio, yeah. there's some tight restrictions, at least in the US, about 
how we make, how we test vaccines. Safety and efficacy are super important. So, you know, we have to do all the different phases, right? We're going to quickly do, say that. Uh, just very briefly, yeah. you know, we, we've got to do the preclinical tests like animal models, for example. So not just culturing in cells, but looking at how animals respond to it. We do the... And would that be both safety to the animal, but also efficacy for the animal? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. We're going to look at phase one, phase two, phase three. So phase one trials. is what really low amount of numbers. Yep. And you're crudely just looking at bad side effects. Is it safe? Yeah. And... Okay. What's the dosage range? Okay. Do we go high? Do we go low? And do you get, not so much efficacy, but more, do you get side effects from yeah, high, high amounts? Low phase amounts. one's mainly safety, right? Okay. And then phase two, you go to a higher number. Yep. Um, and then phase three, you go to an even higher number. And that's for efficacy. That's to see if it's actually effective to either prevent the disease or prevent the infection yeah one of the major differences between phase two and phase three is in phase two you look at in healthy individuals phase three you start to spread out and start looking at other other individuals um phase three you really start giving the vaccine to people within a multitude of communities right people who would likely be getting this disease and then you look at it and you obviously do certain arms of these trials where you do a vaccine arm and a placebo arm which is often just saline or another type of vaccine yeah um and so i think just a a point to add there in a normal clinical trial and this might not be just in vaccines this could be with any medication right each time you, you move through a phase stage you then have to go back and look for more money right so you do yeah. your phase one or your pre-clinical you do that for a period of time we we you know we do this in our spinal cord and our peripheral nerve That's research right. right you do all this work it takes us years because we've only got a couple of researchers doing it yep um, then you finally get some great outcomes the next stage you got to apply for a, a ton of grants for over you know many many years and then finally you get a money you got to sign all the forms do all the bureaucratic stuff yep and then now you're ready for clinical one yep and then you got to do it again that's right but here what happened was all these ins- ins- institutes all these governments were just going hey here's a suitcase of money just get it done yeah and, and they were able to kind of jump through the red ta- do you think red tape's the correct word just in terms of yeah. just the funding yeah. points yeah look i think no scientist was surprised that we could create vaccines this quickly when the entire world needed it and you had an endless supply of money behind you yeah right I mean, that's, that's just... Isn't that great? None of us were surprised within the scientific community. People, I get lay people, non-scientists, will be sitting there going, well, it took this long to get this and this happened this quickly. They had to have had shortcuts. Yeah. You don't realise the bu- bureaucracy yeah. and the paperwork and all, like you said, having to go back and presenting and saying we need more money to go to the next phase and the next phase. We so, the, don't- so the safety parts weren't... Any different to any normal no. clinical trial? No. But just the the, the pivot points were um, cut dramatically. Yep. That's okay. exactly right. So it's look, we've given these vaccines to over 40 million people worldwide, right? Yep. Now, if you think there's going to be some issues, you would have heard of a lot of issues. So just A lot of issues. Even, think about it, even if it's a one in a thousand we would have had thousands of issues. It's not even that. It's not even a one in like a one in a million is an anaphylactic event for a vaccine, right? We've had forty million, and, pe- and people get anaphylactic events from peanuts. Well, from, the, okay. from seafood. All right. So how's this? I, I was looking into this. It was actually f- 
relatively hard to get this bit of information. But penicillin, which is one type of the 10 major classes of antibiotics, right? Penicillin. The, probably the worst type of reaction you can, one of the worst types of reactions you can have to a drug is an anaphylactic event, right? And this can happen. This is just a hyperimmune response. Everything goes crazy. Your blood vessels dilate. Your blood pressure drops through the floor. Your brain and organs don't get enough blood and you die, right? Your bronchioles constrict. You can't breathe. You can't breathe, right? So this is anaphylaxis. Now, 0.18% of people who have penicillin get an anaphylactic event. Have an anaphylactic event, right? Zero point one eight. Now you probably look at this and you're like, "Well, that's a low number. That's, so that's pretty good." Is that one thousand? That's one in a thousand. Yeah. Now, if you think about this when it comes to vaccines, yeah. an anaphylactic event, what you're going to find and, is, and, and just on that point, no one by that um, case amount would then advocate to ban penicillin. I haven't seen the anti penicillin uh, penicillin group. group saying that their kids shouldn't be taking penicillin, yeah. right? Vaccines, 0.0001%. Okay. It's one in a million. One in a million. Right? Is that anaphylaxis? Anaphylaxis. Okay. From all vaccines. Okay. So 0.18% was just penicillin and 0.0001% is all vaccines. You mean combined? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so this it's is- very th- low. Look, and it's important to know. It's note so safe, vaccines. And it's important it's to know. Th- no, th- no drug is yeah. 100% safe. Yeah, that's right. But this is that you shouldn't be thinking about drugs as whether it's 100% safe or not. It's how safe is this drug. Mm. Every drug has some potential side effect, yeah. including vaccines, sure. right? Yep. And so people are saying, well, it's not 100% safe. Sure. Nothing you really do is. Nothing you ingest is. Nothing, yeah. no drug or intervention that you take is. But it's the probably most well-regulated and safest intervention we have. And it saves so many lives. It's the biggest lifesaver, right? Yep, definitely. And finally, just one last question. And this is again in COVID. Oh yeah, we're busting myths. I forgot. Last myth to bust in the COVID vaccine is we've heard recently, particularly I think it was in Norway, where... I don't know how many. Oh yeah, quite ten more. Yeah, 19? about ten. Ten to oh, it could yeah, higher than ten. Uh, 11. Elderly people who were vaccinated with this maybe Pfizer uh, died. So can you shed some light there? Yeah. So we don't actually know what happened here. Um, what people are thinking, what the researchers are thinking, is that when you look at the way that vaccines work, is when they elicit that immune response, you get T helper cells that get stimulated and they're helper cells. So they call in the rest of the immune system and they do it by releasing cytokines. These are things like interleukins, for example. And cytokines just get spread throughout the body. They call in B cells. They call in cytotoxic T cells. They do a whole bunch of work. But the other thing that cytokines do is they give you fever. They give you muscle soreness, nausea, sometimes vomiting, sometimes diarrhea, sometimes these other effects this is just saying the cytokines are released because your body's having an immune response to the vaccine which is what you want right and also because you're getting a fever you're ramping up your body temperature therefore your metabolism you're going into forms of catabolism so breaking down and so it's quite a a lot of energy and it's a decent toll on the body right yeah getting a vaccine is an immunological and biological challenge 
right? And if we think about the analogy in which, you know, if I was 16 and someone said, go into the gym and do this crazy killer workout. Let's just say, do a marathon. I do a marathon. I could do it. And the next day, I'd be a little bit sore, but I'll be all right. If someone told me now, go do a marathon, um, it'd probably take me a week to a month to recover. And the reason is because the older you get, your physiological reserve diminishes. Your ability to recover and regenerate and rejuvenate after a challenge, whether it's a metabolic challenge, cellular challenge, so immunological challenge. If you got an 85-year-old to do a marathon? They would probably die. Yeah. And so I think what, what e- might even be if happening... They, even if they were a marathon runner in their yeah. earlier life, yes. they and probably also would die. And I think what, what's happening here, and I'm saying this tentatively, I don't know, is that they had the immunological challenge and the, the fever and, and the nausea and muscle soreness and the inflammatory response may have been too much for them to handle. Um, but it's, it is part of the... And, I'm, and it, it's horrible, but this is when they need to then investigate and say, okay, how frail is the individual taking this vaccine? And that's when you have to weigh it up. You weigh up the benefits of taking the vaccine versus the potential issues of getting or contracting COVID. Yeah, and I think this is also opens up the important point, again, of uh, herd immunity. There's always going to be a, a certain number within the population that may not just be able to get the vaccine. So all of us are doing a benefit for those particular individuals. And this is a thing that really bothered me Prior to COVID, when f- the flu was the thing that we were arguing, pe- you know, the flu vaccine was what we were arguing people to take, I would have friends, young, fit, healthy people who aren't within the health and medical industry, and they'll say to me, I don't need to take the flu vaccine. Look at me. Even if I got the flu, I'd be all I'd, right. I'd fight it off and I'd be fine. You're exactly the person who should be taking the flu vaccine because, one, like you said earlier, your R value your r naught's going to be high, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're going to be passing around, on to more people. You're moving around the population Yes, more. that's the first thing. Second thing is you have to take it because other people may not be able to. The elderly, mm. the young, the immunocompromised. So you need to be taking it for those people. Look, we're getting, we're getting on here. We still need to do COVID. <laughs> yep, let's do it. So this is the last part of today's podcast and it's on the two main forms of the COVID vaccine. Three. Well, I've, Other I'm types. putting two together. Okay, okay. Okay, um, so the first type, the mRNA, do you want to do that? Okay, so I'm going to tell you right now when, no, how the, MR, the mRNA vaccines work, so the mechanism of action, then I'll tell you how the AstraZeneca slash Oxford one works. All right, so these mRNA vaccines, no one's done them before. So this is the first type of mRNA vaccine ever produced, which is awesome and very cool. And you need to understand the a fundamental point of biochemistry is DNA turns to mRNA turns to protein. Proteins play a whole wide range of structural and functional roles within the body. DNA is the uh, genetic makeup that sits within all cells of our body except which ones? Probably red blood cells. Red blood cells. I'm sure there's others. That's right. But it's like a hard copy, right? It's it's not a very easy to be read. Yep. Version. So we need to make it a more readable version and we need to turn DNA to mRNA. That's called transcription. Okay. Just like you reading your lecturer's notes and writing it in a more legible, understandable way, you create mRNA. And then that mRNA gets turned into proteins through ribosomes and in the cytoplasm. In the cytoplasm. And those ribosome those proteins can 
be structural, functional, or whatever. Now, understanding that premise, what's happening is when your body gets exposed to a virus or a bacteria, like we said, they've got proteins on the surface. That's what the body recognizes to elicit an immune response. So what these very ingenious virologists and researchers have done and vaccinologists is they've taken one of the surface proteins. Which one? SARS-CoV-2, the spike protein, the S protein. Right. And they've reverse engineered it back to the mRNA. They found out what the mRNA sequence is. Like the blueprint. Yeah. The readable version yep. that can turn into the, spike or translate protein. into the spike protein. Then they take the mRNA and they throw it into a fat globule. Okay. This lipid bilayer. Butterballs. But, what you call me? <laughs> How did you know my nickname in high school? So, if... <laughs> why would we want to... Nano, nanoparticles. <laughs> That was my nickname in high school. No, no, that's what it is. It's oh. like fat droplets in nanoparticle size. So why would we want to stick it in a fat droplet? Because I think if you uh, inject it into someone's arm, the mRNA won't get into cells really that well because each cell has a outer membrane, which is also made out of fat, and you can't get that code into the cell to be read. Perfect. Yeah, so we stick it into some fat so that when we inject it, fat loves fat. You put oil in a pan, mix it with other oil, it comes together really nicely. So the mRNA just slides into our cells. All right, I got a question for you. Yeah. If I inject this into your arm, yep. which part? The peak of my bicep? No, the deltoid. Okay. Uh, that's where it goes, right? It's yes. Intramuscular. Yep. Because um, it's the Goldilocks tissue. Nice. You don't want to put it into a, a vein. I'm not sure exactly why. Or you don't want to put it into the skin. You want it to put it in the muscle. Probably just got it's got enough blood supply, but not too much. I yeah. don't know the whole. But I've been told by okay. but it's uh, experts just that it's right. just right. Okay. So if I jab it into your deltoid muscle, isn't all the cells getting it going to be your muscle cells? Well, in part, yeah, my muscle cells will get it, so and there will probably be a high concentration of this at that site and yeah. I'd probably my the muscle cells of my deltoid would probably make a huge amount of these S proteins and okay. elicit a localized significant immune response hence okay. the pain um, so but it would so go into the bloodstream and it would be yeah. disseminated to other cells of the body okay brilliant now how how long does mRNA hang around for well if I were to put it on my lab bench for example yeah. uh, a couple of hours okay right mm. um, but it's like DNA lasts hundreds of thousands oh, of years, yeah, yeah. right? But, but mRNA, mRNA doesn't. So, so DNA is hard to read, but it's it lasts longer. Lasts forever. mRNA easy to read, but it breaks up real quick. Okay, so I guess my point here is, I mean, this is a good analogy that I heard from a, um, a vaccinologist. He said it's I like think that's right. he said it's like Snapchat messages. Oh yeah, you so, read it and disappears. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it only hangs around for hours. Does that still exist, Snapchat? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Hangs I'm around for a few hours yep. and then disappears, which means it pro- it produces its proteins for a while and then that's it. Yes. So, we inject this mRNA. It goes into the cells. The mRNA does not go into the nucleus where the DNA is. So it can't change my genome. No. I'm sorry. It doesn't intercalate with your DNA. It doesn't merge with your DNA. It doesn't change your so DNA. So besides the mRNA, some fat droplets, is there anything else? Just a bit of salty water. That's right. And where, what about the, the microchip that, you know? Oh, that allows you to transmit 5G for Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, I'm, I've been paid and told not to, not to talk about that. Okay, okay. Um, obviously, I haven't. We're not shills. So... The mRNA goes to the cytoplasm, not the nucleus. Yep. 
it gets translated by ribosomes into you know strands of amino acids yeah. that fold spontaneously into proteins yeah. and it actually folds into the spike protein the s protein now this which isn't going to do which anything. Is the spike, which is the spike of the virus. Yeah, and it's not going to do anything because it's just the spike, right? So, one, it's non-functional. But two, the body goes, this isn't my protein. So, s- certain cells will take this protein and present it on its surface. Yeah. And these types of cells are macrophages or phagocytic cells, dendritic cells. We spoke about them last week, right? They're the ones that gobble things up and they'll present. I think, And then they run down the hallway... To the lymph node. Yeah, saying, hey, look what I got. And they call in Which I think is important because they go into a lymph node where there's a ton of B and T cells. That's right. Mm. And they say, look what I got. The T helper cells come along, have a look. T helper cells with their CD4 complex will bind to where this protein is being presented on this mm. MHC, major histocompatibility type 2, yep. right? Um, maybe this is too much detail, but it's there. And the T cells, T helper cells get stimulated to release cytokines. It's these cytokines that give you the fever, muscle soreness, headache, so forth. So again, it's a normal part of getting the vaccine or vaccines. Yep. But it also calls in cytotoxic T cells, and they now are pri- they get primed to they get primed so that if you get infected by SARS-CoV-2 again, so would that would they go to the actual muscle cells that are expressing that are holding the protein and kill them? No. Okay. No, I don't think so. I think so those, it's for subsequent. So the muscle cells that are holding or expressing it on their outside of their membrane, do they get killed? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think it's all subsequent infections because, again, cytotoxic T cells, I think, need to be primed as well. Okay. So so now the outcome is you've, you've been primed against the S protein or the spike protein. And yes. now if you were to re-encounter... Well, we're not there yet because the T helper cell needs to call in B cells. Right, okay. And the B cells turn into plasma cells. They produce antibodies. And then we've now got antibody-based memory and T memory as well. Okay. So that's correct. So now this is how both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines work. Right? Can I just add a point here? No. Uh, because it is an interesting point, I thought. Yep. Is that some people will say, well, I don't understand if I get this vaccine... Um, I've been told that I won't get COVID in a serious form to die or get a serious infection, but I could be still infectious. Yeah, potentially. So I think an important point here is to be... We co- don't know. Yep. But the difficulty here working with a virus that infects the respiratory system is that to be completely um, sterilised, I think this is the term they use, sterilised immunity, which means you have so many neutralizing antibodies right at the level of where you get infected, infected, which would mean when the COVID virus comes in, it's killed almost immediately, Yeah, which is going to be probably unlikely. What would happen would be, after you've been vaccinated against it, it would still come in, hypothetically, infect your lung cells. They would start to spread, potentially release the virus back out. So theoretically at least, you can still spread it for a period of time. Yeah. But then your immune system will come in very quickly and kill it off before it, kill, it causes any serious disease. Yeah. But it's going to be very difficult with respiratory infections to sterilize your immunity because it's still the outside world. Yeah. Maybe You're, if we had a spray, maybe if we got it by spray, it would be of some benefit. Maybe. I, I think know. it's just because 
the lining of your respiratory tract um, won't have necessarily these immune systems sitting it's on true. them to ready kill everything when it arrives. It has yeah. to be infected first. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's definitely one of the one of the reasons why you can remain infectious, or we think I should say we think. So the other one is the AstraZeneca or the Oxford vaccine. Yeah. So the way this so basically. This is a vector. Yeah, but it's really similar. So a vector just means it's not using fat. It's using something else to deliver the, the package. And the package came in this case... came from my family, actually. Did it? Yeah. What is it? A chimpanzee oh, adeno- yes. adenovirus. That's right. All right. So think about uh, the parcel itself, the box that it's delivering it in. So isn't it's a car. All right. No, wait. The box is... So it's not a fat nanoparticle. Okay. It's a virus. And inside the virus is basically empty, but it contains DNA... For the same spike protein, not mRNA, but DNA. So, so this is the one that will change your genome. No, but that's what people are saying yeah. because people get well. F- firstly, I don't want to be inve- infected with a monkey virus. Well, firstly, shut up because seven percent of your DNA is other organisms' viruses that have incorporated itself into your body. Right? There's actually viruses that we have that are so old that we got them before we were even humans and they keep us alive today. So to say, oh, because it's from another organism, it's going to be bad, detrimental, whatever. No, not true. That's demonstrating ignorance. So it's an adenovirus from a chimpanzee and the reason why we do that is because our body doesn't recognize it to cause disease. Yeah. So it's simply used as a, as a delivery man, knocks on the door and says, hey, say here you go. like a, a shelled out car. Okay, but how do you not recognize it? Just it just drives into your cell, and then what comes out of it is the DNA material. Uh, I like the delivery driver. He's a nice bloke. Knocks on the door. Bit different, bit weird, but you don't care. You don't start finding him or anything. So, and he hands you this DNA. Now, this DNA th- does go into the nucleus. Okay. So you must think, does it get incorporated? Yeah. No, it doesn't. So the DNA just sits there in the nucleus, doesn't mix in with our DNA, doesn't change our genome. It just simply uses the transcriptional machinery Machinery, to turn it to mRNA. And now we're back to what we were talking about with Moderna and Pfizer. Okay. So the same thing. So that's expressed, mates the proteins, and then we get the immune response. Exactly the same. Yep. Yep. So it's going to have the same response, different methodology, or at least different prior. So so they're they're the mechanisms, but I think we should talk about very briefly, the, the the way that you get the two doses, okay, the people that they've tested it on, the efficacy, individually, because that will take a while. Yeah, we won't go through one by one, but what we'll do is we'll start with the Moderna. You get one at day zero, you get one at day 28. So four weeks apart. Yeah, same with AstraZeneca. You do the same. Okay. And what they did when they when they did this for the study was they waited if you got symptoms at day 14 or after, then they tested you for COVID. With the AstraZeneca one, they waited to day 14 and tested you regardless of COVID. So you probably got more info stats behind you there. For Pfizer, they gave you a dose at 0 and 21, right? And then they'll test you if you had symptoms after seven days for COVID. So that's what they did there. Now for the Moderna, they've done it on 30,000 people, minimum 30,000 people. For AstraZeneca, they've done it on around about 12,000, but now they're inoculating more people around the world um, or vaccinating more people around the world. So that number's growing up, right? Pfizer, 40,000 people. 
Okay. Now, for all of them, they've split it up into placebos and vaccinated groups. Yeah. Now, if we look at Moderna, of the placebos, so saline, they just got salt water yeah, yeah. to the vaccine. They didn't know. Uh, not even the people who gave it to they them. They were blinded, yeah. Right? 185 of them got COVID of the placebo. Okay. 11 of the vaccinated group got COVID. So were positive afterwards? Yeah. After the second dose? Yeah. Okay. And what about... Severe Severe, cases, 30 of the 185 were severe, zero of the 11 were severe for the Moderna. Okay, so so you can conclude that it it seems to stop the serious infection. It seems to say that the Moderna vaccine is 100% effective of stopping severe COVID and 95% effective at transmitting or contracting, Contracting, I should say, COVID, right? Compare this to Pfizer. Compare this to Pfizer in which... Same, placebo, vaccine, saline for the placebo. 162 COVID positive and eight COVID positive for the vaccine group. Nine were severe from the vaccine group. From the, from the control? Oh, from the placebo group, sorry. Yep. And one was severe from the vaccine group. Okay. So what this is saying is that it's not 100% effective at stopping severe, but it's about 87, 88% effective, but 90% effective at contracting the disease. AstraZeneca, the Oxford one, right? They broke this up into Brazil and the UK. 9,000 Brazil, 3,000 UK. They didn't use saline. They used meningococcal instead, right? I think that was one of those controversies early on in the clinical trial is because one of the placebo groups did have a reaction and that's because it's actually a vaccine. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So in, the, in Brazil, so this is the interesting thing. This is why there's a bit of controversy at the moment with AstraZeneca. So in Brazil, they gave them the full dose at day zero and the full dose at day 28. In the UK, for some reason, gave them half a dose at day zero and full dose at day 28. Now, in Brazil, the efficacy when it came to getting the disease, 62%. That's relatively low. Yep. Compared to the other two. For the UK, 90%. So they're thinking, man, is it the half dose that's doing this? Is that, is that what's responsible? So now they've got to go back and look at the data and now they've got to do bigger numbers to determine whether a half dose is the way oh. to go or not. Yeah, well. The other final point I want to make is the way it's stored. Moderna needs to be stored at minus 20. Yep. Pfizer, minus 70. Mm. I'm talking about Celsius here. And the AstraZeneca Oxford can be stored in the fridge. Now, because of that, the AstraZeneca Oxford, you can make billions and billions and billions because it can be stored and distributed easily. The other ones are going to be more difficult. Right? So even though at the moment they seem to be more efficacious. Logistically, it's more challenging. That's right. I think the one point I would add to that, and I did hear it discussed earlier, is... That colder temperature is long-term storage. If it's kind of in the point of distribution, it doesn't have to be that cold. So if it was going to, let's say, use the next day, yeah. it could drop down a bit. But if it needs to be long-term stored, it has to be very cold. Now, I know we're hitting final points, but I just want to uh, talk about... In the UK, there I know a lot of medicos who are only getting one shot. Because we said all these are two shots. So that 95% efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna is after the second shot. 
AstraZeneca, that 90% in the UK, after the second shot, not the first. So people are asking, well, is it even worth getting one shot? And if I get one shot, am I protected? So if you think historically of vaccines that require more than one shot, MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, right? Need a booster shot. If you only get one dose, children, 40% of them who only get one dose, aren't immune to MMR. After the second dose, only 4% aren't immune to MMR. So the booster's really important. This is the same for the other ones. What the stats tend to say at the moment, if you only have one booster, uh, sorry, one shot, the first shot, without the booster, these numbers are subject to change. They're tentative. I don't know how much I trust them. The Pfizer, depending on the way they play with the data, between 52 to 85% protection after one shot. After the second, you get 95%. Moderna, after one shot, 80%. After two, 95%. AstraZeneca, after one shot, 65%. After two, again, depending on how you look at the data, between 65 to 90%. So with these papers, have they commented at all? I know what the clinical trials you spoke about, that they, the gaps between the first and second was like 28 days. But hypothetically, if it was going to be run out for months, do they assume that it won't really change or they think it may have a difference? Well, that's why I say it depends on the numbers, the way you look at the numbers, because if you start, if you take, give them one dose and then you start measuring at day seven, whether they're immune or protected, it may not come through. If you start at day 14, the number's going to be higher because it takes longer to get that immune response in. That's why the I said for the Pfizer, it's between 52 to 85% because it's 52% after the first dose after if you start measuring like after day seven. But if you start measuring after something like two or three weeks, it moves up to 85% protection. Yeah. So because obviously time takes to develop the immune response. But who knows? I don't know. I mean, the, the, this still is, very early on, this is all in the... We've only had the virus for just over a year. But again, I reiterate, 40 million people have had the vaccines. People are thinking about, I'm worried about the long-term damage because we haven't looked at them long-term. Can you think of a virus, a vaccine, I should say, I keep saying virus, a vaccine where they've taken the vaccine but haven't ex- exhibited any symptoms i think also they the a F- decade later for example i think the fda looked at this amongst all all vaccines and they actually looked at those that got um side effects in the early stages versus long term and so basically there's what they found from literature reviews if you didn't get any kind of issue immediately like anaphylactic response you're not going to get anything long term yeah that's right so we're safe to assume that the long-term issues aren't going to be the concern no, I mean, I don't even know what they could potentially be, right? So, um, initially, you may get a, a a vaccine and you may have to just sit there for 10 minutes just to see if you're going to have some anaphylactic episode. Yeah, yeah. That's it. But you don't get a call up in, in five years to say, hey, how are you going from that vaccine? It's never happened and we've got so many vaccines out. Mm. All right, I think we've got to stop, dude. Yeah, that's a long one. I'm tired. This is going to be two hours, right? <laughs> Coming towards it, yeah. Anyway, we'll put timestamps on so that people know when to, where to go, what to do. If people are still listening at this point. Look, if you are still listening, follow me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> 
at Dr. Mike Todorovic at D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. Same handle on Twitter. Uh, Matt's not on anything as a loser. Mm-hmm. But you can email him at G-U-Biosciences <laughs> at gmail.com. So, no, just G- G-U-Biosciences at gmail.com. Oh, hope, hope boy. This was okay. There's quite a lot we covered. Yeah, I've got to go home. I'm tired and I want some food. It's late, late night. All right, Mickey, I'll see you for the adaptive immune system. Woohoo! Catch you next time. See ya. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.